the chapter that corresponds to this week's message entitled, The Work and the Life. Basically, we've taken a look at what it means to put your faith in Christ, to accept Him as Savior, to confess and repent, and by faith trust Him in His Word. And now the question is, what do you do with it? What does it look like in the real life to be a follower of Jesus? It's a very, very, almost painfully simple premise, but hopefully it has some very significant manifestations and and ramifications in our life today. But before we study God's Word, let's start with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you again for this Sabbath day. Bless us now as we come together to fellowship and to worship and to study this Word of God. Bless this time together, we ask, that you would give us the promised wisdom that only the Spirit can give. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would, please open your Bibles to John chapter 10, the 10th chapter of the Gospel of John. John chapter 10. And as you're turning there, I'll set the stage by saying that it's a, it's a big deal, if I can say it that commonly. It's a very big deal to claim to be the Son of God. And in the time of Jesus, when he was living, it was an exceedingly dangerous claim to make. But Jesus never asked anyone to believe in him without providing ample evidence to the veracity of his claim. It's one thing to claim to be the sent of God, the Son of God, the ambassador of heaven. But it's another thing to prove it. And Jesus was faced with this challenge all throughout his life and ministry, particularly from his enemies, and we're going to see even from some of his closest friends. Let's go to the book of John, chapter 10, start with verse 22. Now it was the feast of dedication in Jerusalem, and it was winter, and Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. Then the Jews surrounded him and said to him, how long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, do what? Tell us plainly. Make it plain. Just say yes or no. We want a clear answer from you. Make it plain. Are you the Christ or not? Now, clearly, this is a yes or no question. Yes, I am, or no, I'm not. And these were not Jesus' friends. These are the ones critiquing him, challenging him. And notice what Jesus replies in verse 25. Jesus answered them, I told you. Is this the first time he's been confronted with this issue? No. And in the past, his answer has been, yes. (laughs) Are you the Christ? Yes. He says, but they're asking again. I told you, but what's the problem? You don't believe me. You do not believe. Then he adds this. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. What good is it going to do for me to tell you again when you don't believe the words that come out of my mouth? But outside of my own claim, look at the works themselves as evidence to the veracity of the claim. Does that make sense? Okay. Jesus appeals to the evidence of his works. Go to John chapter 14. Now, that was from the Jewish leaders who were against Jesus. Now, let's look at his own disciples. What do they say? John chapter 14, starting with verse 7. 
If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. And now notice verse 11. Believe that I am in the Father, and the Father in me, or... So notice you can just take my word for it, believe me, or what else? Or else believe me for the sake of what? The works themselves. You can either take me at my word, or you can inspect the works. But both of them have an equal claim. It's just as true if I say it, but if you don't believe that, at least look at the evidence. By the way, in verse 12, he goes on to say, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. We'll come back to that at the end of the message. But perhaps the most stinging rebuke, or at least stinging question, is found in Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. Not only his enemies asked the question, looking for evidence, not only did his disciples ask about Christ's true identity, and he had to offer them evidence, And here now we see in Matthew chapter 11 that Jesus' blood relative and forerunner cousin, John the Baptist, the one who stood in the Jordan River and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. As he is in prison, we read of this story. Matthew chapter 11, starting with verse 1. Now it came to pass when Jesus finished commanding his twelve disciples, that he departed from there to teach and to preach in their cities. And when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, now there are some works that John was expecting Christ to do. In John's mind, Christ was the Messiah that he pictured, just like most all the other Jews expected the Messiah to be. Fire coming from heaven, the yoke of tyranny taken off of the backs, and and, and political liberation, revolution for the Israelites over the Roman Empire. But all Jesus does is walk around teaching and preaching and healing and helping and hanging out with sinners, right? When John the Baptist had stood and fiery preached about repentance and bringing forth fruit, and here's Jesus just... It's like saying, I cleared the path for the Messiah, and you're not being very, you know, Messiah-like in his understanding of what the Messiah should be. So this is what we find. He hears about the works of Christ, and what does he do? It says in verse 2, He sent two of his disciples and said to him, Are you the coming one, or do we look for what? Another. Are you just another imposter, a fake, a phony, a false Christ? Is the true one still to come, or are you the one? Same question always asked. What's the easiest answer Jesus could say? Yes. And I'm guessing the disciples would have said, oh, that's great. And they go back to John the Baptist in prison and say, good news, he said he is the Messiah. And for a good, I don't know, 30, 40 seconds, 
John would have felt relief. Oh, good. But then he would have been thinking, wait a minute. If I went and asked a false Messiah if he's the true Messiah, what's he going to say? Yes. (laughs) Isn't that exactly what a liar would say? So how can I trust his words? By the works. This is where Jesus knew what was going on. So look at verse 4. Jesus answered and said to them, remember it's a yes or no question. He doesn't answer with a yes or a no. Go and tell John the things which you hear and see. Basically, he's like, you hang out here for a while, you watch and you listen, and then you go give your report. Be with me for a day and tell him what you hear and what you see. Commenting on this experience, Desire of Ages, page 217, we read these words. The Savior did not at once answer the disciples' question. As they stood wondering at his silence, the sick and afflicted were coming to him to be healed. You know, everywhere Jesus went, a crowd gathered. Sad people, brokenhearted people, physically ill people, the outcasts of society. Everyone was coming to Jesus because he would go to them. He would converse with them. He would deal with them. He would mingle with them. He would heal them of their diseases. And they were coming to Jesus. So on one hand, Jesus is being Uh, surrounded by those in need, and on the other hand, someone asking, are you the Christ? And he says, you know what? Before I give you an answer, let me show you the answer. As they stood wondering at his silence, the sick and afflicted were coming to him to be healed. The blind were groping their way through the crowd, Diseased ones of all classes, some urging their own way and some borne by their friends, were eagerly pressing into the presence of Jesus. The voice of the mighty healer penetrated the deaf ear. A word, a touch of his hand, opened the blind eyes to behold the light of day, the scenes of nature, the faces of friends, and the face of the deliverer. Jesus rebuked diseases and banished fever. His voice reached the ears of the dying, and they arose in health and vigor. Paralyzed demoniacs obeyed his word. Their madness left them and they worshipped him. While he healed their diseases, he taught the people. Notice it's not just work for the body or work for the soul. He mingled it together. While he was healing, he taught the people. The poor peasants and laborers who who were shunned by the rabbis as unclean gathered close about him and he spoke to them the words of eternal life. And then she makes this comment. The evidence of his divinity was seen in its adaptation to the needs of suffering humanity. His glory, which is his character, was shown in his condescension to our low estate. By the way, we go back to the scripture record, Matthew chapter 11. Go back to verse 4. Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things which you hear and see. And to make sure that they report exactly what they heard and saw, Jesus explains to them what to say. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. 
Notice there's physical healing and spiritual teaching being combined in the ministry of Jesus. He says, make sure you don't just talk about the physical healings and don't just talk about the preaching. Make sure you say the blind, the lame, the sick, the dead, and the poor. And notice he uses the phrase, the poor have the gospel preached to them. You know, Jesus didn't make that phrase up. He wasn't just shooting from the hip or coining his own term at that point. That's a phrase lifted from the Old Testament scriptures. And I believe Jesus understood that John the Baptist would hear that phrase and say, no, no, wait, where have I heard that book? No, wait a minute. So he gets this exact message as Jesus demonstrated it and he encapsulated it. said, here's the summary statement, now go tell him that. It's not a yes or no. Describe what you've seen and heard and tell him what you've seen. Turn back, if you would, to the book of Isaiah. Chapter 61. Verse 1, this great messianic prophecy of the coming deliverer, Isaiah 61, verse 1, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. By the way, when was Jesus anointed for his ministry? At his baptism. Who baptized him? John. Because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Jesus could have said yes, and it would have been true, would it not? But it wouldn't have carried the significance that a demonstration of the truth the weight that that would carry with John. And he comes back and he hears, my word, Jesus is outdoing the exact things that the Bible prophesied he would do, that the Messiah would do. So now he has it on the sure word of God. By the way, one more interesting layer to this particular story. Go back now to Luke, this time chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. When Jesus had just been anointed at his baptism, he went and faced the devil one-on-one for just over a month, for 40 days and 40 nights. Victorious over Satan, he returns to his hometown of Nazareth and declares the beginning of his ministry. Matthew, I'm sorry, Luke chapter 4, starting with verse 16. So he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet whom? Isaiah. And notice carefully the language. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. Now, of course, the book was not in a codex form like we have. It didn't flip the pages. He has to unroll the scroll, right? So it didn't just fall open naturally. He has to look for the particular passage. He's given the book, but he doesn't just randomly open up. He's specifically looking for one particular text. And he takes his time. 
And he goes through, no, 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 aha, there it is. What do you suppose it is? Well, you're already reading ahead. You know what it is. Isaiah 61, look what he says. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book. That was his whole message. So that was the scripture reading portion. I love how Jesus preaches. Here's the word of God, and here's the application. He finds the text, verse 20 now. Then he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And all the eyes of him were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. He reads Isaiah 61.1 closes the book. Here's my concluding thought. That's me. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. (laughs) What a fascinating... It caused a stir, did it not? Did he just claim that that was about... Now, it's one thing to proclaim that, but what did Jesus do with the rest of his life? He lived that out. So that any time people ask about his claim to Messiahship, he said, no, 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 don't just take my word for it. Look at the works as evidence that I am who I say I am. I am sent from God, and the way you know it is because I act as God acts. I do the works. Repeatedly, the ultimate evidence that Jesus was in fact what he claimed to be was seen in his selfless work for others. Thus, it is little surprise as we go to the book of Acts now, the other book that Luke wrote, Acts chapter 10, it's little surprise that when Peter has the opportunity to share who Jesus was with this leading Gentile by the name of Cornelius, that this is the summary statement he gives of the life and ministry of Jesus. Acts chapter 10 Verse 34, then Peter opened his mouth, (laughs) probably says that a lot in scripture, but, and said, here's his opening salvo, this is his opening presentation, in truth I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all, that word you know which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached. And here it is, verse 38. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. He said all the things that you've read about in the scriptures that you're familiar with, Jesus Christ came and lived them out in his own. He was anointed with power by the Holy Spirit and went about doing good and healing all the people, for God was with him. You could tell that God was with him because he went about doing good and healing all the people. That's who Jesus was. The guy who went about doing good. Is that what people say of us? 
Boy, those Seventh Adventists, they're the people who go about... Well, we're not to the punchline of the sermon yet, so we'll just let that sit for a while. But please turn over to Matthew chapter 5. And that great presentation known as the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus gives what are now very familiar words to the crowd that day. Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 through 16. He says, you are the light of the world. By the way, would Jesus also say that he was the light of the world? Yes. But if we believe in Jesus, we are to represent him in this world. Yes? No? So he says to his believers, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put under a basket, but on a lampstand and It gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may hear of your good profession. No? No. That they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. If you want to demonstrate who God is, you need to show it By your works. This is the moniker that Jesus lived by. This was the premise of his life. Here's who God is. Now look and I'll show you what it looks like in real life. Are you really the Messiah? Well, yes and no is an easy answer, but let me show you what it looks like in life. Repeatedly to his enemies, his friends, even his closest companions, Jesus went back to the evidence of his connection with God was the life of selfless labor for others that he lived. And then Jesus explained, that's what you're going to do too. The works that I do, you will do. Ephesians, let's go to the book of Ephesians. The Apostle Paul picks up on this. Ephesians chapter 2, in that little sandwich of books, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, right there in the middle. Ephesians chapter 2, starting with verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works. Now you might be saying, wait a minute, this whole sermon's about works. What are you saying? Not of works. We'll get there in just a second. Lest anyone should boast. By the way, are we saved by our works? No. However, look at the next verse, verse 10. For we are his workmanship. Notice whose works save us. His works, right? Created in Christ Jesus for what purpose? Good works. Friends, well, let's finish the text. In Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So God's works saved us, not our own. Amen? However, our works are not meant to be an aid in saving us, but our works are to be an aid in saving others. Do you catch that? In the same way that God worked to save us, we should work to save others. Not to save ourselves, but to save others. That we should do good works just like he did. Go to the book of Titus. Keep going to the right. The end of the T section in the New Testament. Titus chapter 2. Paul again repeats this theme. Slightly different language, but it's the same moral of the story. Titus chapter 2, let's start with verse 11. 
For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. So yes, we should deny ungodliness. We should stay distant from evil and not commit sin. Looking, verse 13, for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed, so we're free from every lawless deed, and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for what? Good works. Notice that there's two coins to this issue of righteousness, two sides to this coin of righteousness, if you will. Yes, one part of it is staying away from the bad, keeping yourself pure from evil and undefiled by the world, but the other side of it is zealous for good works, doing something. Christianity is just as much what you don't as it is what you do, and vice versa. Christianity is not a passive intellectual pursuit. It's an active transformation of the life that works to win other souls. James chapter 2. I can't think of anyone in the Bible who says it more succinctly, more clearly, more powerfully, and I'll say more controversially than James. James chapter 2, verse 14. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have what? Works. Can faith save him? (laughs) <laughs> now you're thinking, well, wait a minute, am I allowed to say no to that? <laughs> but notice he's building this concept. It's like, faith that doesn't work isn't faith. It's something called faith. It might be a proclamation, but if it's not joined with a demonstration, it's not the real thing. It's a one-sided coin, and that coin don't spend. Right? Can faith save him? And then he gives an example. If, for example... A brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food. And one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled. But you do not give them the things that are needed for the body. What does it profit? If your best thing that you have is, oh, I'm sorry, good luck. Or, I'm sorry, God bless. Well, how is God going to bless? Through you. (laughs) If you don't do it. What profit is it? Thus he says in verse 17, Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Steps to Christ, page 80. We read, and again the chapter title, The Work and the Life. If you will go to work as Christ designs that his disciples shall, And when souls for him, you will feel the need of a deeper experience and a greater knowledge in divine things. And you will hunger and thirst after righteousness. You will plead with God and your faith will be strengthened and your soul will drink deeper drafts at the well of salvation. Encountering opposition and trials will drive you to the Bible in prayer. You will grow in grace and the knowledge of Christ and will develop a rich experience. It reminds me of that chapter just a few chapters before Isaiah 61 was Isaiah 58. You read through the chapter, the people were praying, they were fasting, they were keeping all the observances, but they weren't doing anything for the Lord. And they were wondering, why do we pray and the Lord doesn't seem to answer? Where is this rich experience we're supposed to be having? And Christ says, is this the fast that I have chosen? That you simply 
avoid all the other t- contexts with the world and you don't do anything? No, 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 no. And he gives them a divine prescription. Deal your bread to the hungry. Open your home to the needy. Give of yourself and you'll have need of coming to me to get re- restored. Again, later on the same page, page 80. The only way to grow in grace is to be disinterestedly doing the very work which Christ has enjoined upon us, to engage to the extent of our ability in helping and blessing those who need the help we can give them. Strength, think of the simplicity of this, strength comes by exercise. Does that make sense? Strength comes by exercise. If you have been laid up in a hospital with a severe leg injury and you're, you, you finally get that cast off, the brace is taken away, and your poor little leg is withered away, atrophied to kind of us a stick, do you know any good physical therapist who say, ooh, look at that leg. You know what you need? Bed rest. <laughs> no. What do you need? But what would you say? I can't walk. That's right, you can't now because your leg hasn't worked in a while. But by exercise, it grows. This is a beautiful thing about the goodness and character of Christ active in the life. The very means of developing the character is the very evidence that the character exists. A lot of nodding heads and a lot of you thinking, what did he just say? All right, I'll say it again. The very means by which we develop the character of Christ, which is disinterested service for others, is the very evidence that the character exists. Okay? Strength comes by exercise. I can't. Well, that's true. Not yet. But start walking. Just a little bit. Little things here and there. We're not asking to change the world all at one time. Just do the little bit that you can, and then the Lord will give you strength to do a little bit more, and greater opportunities will open up, and greater influence will be available, greater power will be in store, and you'll start to be strong in Christ in a way that you hadn't been before because you're actually doing something. Strength comes by exercise. Activity is the very condition of life. Those who endeavor to maintain Christian life by passively accepting the blessings that come through the means of grace and doing nothing for Christ are simply trying to live by eating without working. And in the spiritual as in the natural world, this always results in degeneration and decay. A man who would refuse to exercise his limbs would soon lose all power to use them. Thus the Christian who will not exercise his God-given powers not only fails to grow up into Christ, but he loses the strength that he already had. You know, there's no plateau in the Christian walk. You're either growing or you're dying, right? There's only forward and reverse. A lot of us think that there's such a thing as a neutral gear. That You know, I'm just idling. No, you're not. If you're not going forward, you're going backwards. It's one or the other. Christ says, either you're for me or you're against me. No, no, I'm just watching you. No, you're not. (laughs) You're for me or you're against me. You know, I, I wonder what it would be like. I love the Seventh Adventist Church. I love the message of the three angels that we're to give. Revelation chapter 14. I love the Bible studies that are available. I love the prophecy message. I love this message. I've given my life to this message. And my life ain't even half over with. It better not be. No. And I plan on giving every ounce of my life to the end of it. But just having the proclamation itself is not what God intends for his people. 
It's to mingle that teaching with the good works that demonstrate the character of God. You know, there was a time, and, and I, you've probably perhaps heard me reference this, but there was a time in Seventh Adventist history when a local Seventh Adventist church said, what would it look like if we took the message of the three angels that were to give to the world an in-time, present truth message and combined it with Christ-like labor for those around us? What would that really look like if a local church took that on? Well, it happened in 1901. Little town at that time, it was growing even then, but uh, San Francisco. And this is what we read, and this is from the Australian uh, Union record of March 1, 1901, a little article entitled, The Work in San Francisco. Mrs. White writes, from Elder J.O. Corliss, who is pastor of the San Francisco Church, we learn that there are many lines of Christian effort being carried forward by our brethren and sisters in San Francisco. These include, and if you want to start counting on your fingers, here we go, visiting the sick and destitute, finding homes for orphans, and work for the unemployed, nursing the sick, teaching the love of Christ from house to house, the distribution of literature, the conducting of classes for healthful living and the care of the sick. A school for the children is conducted in the basement of the meeting house. And in another part of the city, a working man's home. What's a working man's home? It's a homeless shelter. A working men's home and medical mission is maintained. I've run out of fingers, so just keep up. <laughs> On Market Street near City Hall, there is a bath establishment. What is a bath establishment? It's a hydrotherapy, practical ministry, health ministry. Right? There's a bath establishment operated as a branch of the St. Helena Sanitarium. In the same locality is a, uh, is a depot of the health food company where health foods are not only sold, but instruction is given as to reforms and diets. So they would teach you how to eat, and they would sell you the products to help you out, and they would have a practical health ministry going on. She's not done. Near the center of the city, our people conduct a vegetarian cafe, which is open six days in the week and is entirely closed on the Sabbath. Here, about 500 meals are served daily, and no flesh meats are used. Dr. and Mrs. Dr. Lamb are doing much medical work for the poor in connection with their regular practice, and Dr. Buchanan is doing much free work at the working man's home. At the medical and dental schools in the city, there are about 20 of our young people in attendance. And now listen to this closing line. We earnestly hope that the steps taken in the future in the work in San Francisco will be steps of progress. Listen to this sentence. The work that has been done there is but a beginning. She looked at the vegetarian restaurant, the health food, the this and the that, the every practical ministry for the old, for the poor, for the, for the sick, for the children. He said, she said, all of that is a good start. Now, we have some good starts right here in Muskegon. Praise the Lord. Trying to get going with this community services, with Carly's Closet. And as the Lord leads and blesses, I hope that we see donations come in and fill that up. I hope we see volunteers. I hope we see people bringing people who are in need to the resource that we have available. We do some of this. We do the literature distribution. Going door to door. Every Sabbath, except when there's a potluck, there's a group of people who come together and try to give literature to those in need, try to ask people for Bible studies, go door to door, knock on the door, smile and ask them, would you like to study the Word of God more? 
They need more help. We have personal ministries time every week. And we'll have 100, 120 people in church, and 10 or 12 will show up after that. Now, it's a good start, but it can grow. By the way, we have an active prison ministry. Did Jesus say anything? We'll come back to that in just a minute. About visiting people in prison. We got one right there. We got two. We got three. (laughs) Jim, do you guys need some help in prison ministry still? Got some Bible studies to do? Absolutely. Here we are. Lord, if there was only some way we could do something. In gatherings coming up. It's a great time to fellowship. Get a little exercise. Sing a song. Yeah. Making quilts. He's like, don't forget about the quilts. There you go. Learn how to quilt. Gave away four this week. Praise the Lord. Needed food too. There are needs around right now. Now, I'm not saying we do that instead of sharing the gospel. I'm saying that's the right arm of the gospel. This is what it looks like. We need to match the profession with the demonstration. Matthew chapter 25. Let me close here. I can't think of a clearer, more powerful way to, dis- to talk about the work and the life than from the mouth of Jesus himself. Matthew chapter 25, we'll start with verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the holy angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory. All the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And He will set the sheep on His right hand, but the goats on the left. Then the King will say to those on His right hand, Come, you blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was, what's that word? Hungry. And you gave me food. Did you have any idea that getting into heaven was so simple? I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in, or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Then he will also say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire, prepared for whom? Notice that the fire is not prepared for any one of us. The kingdom is for us. The fire is for the devil and his angels. We weren't designed to go there. But these do. Why? Because they developed a character that fit in there more than in Christ's home in heaven. And he explains why. Verse 42. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not take me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? 
And he will answer them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So many lessons here, but please note, both of these groups of individuals expected to go into the kingdom of God. But only one group had actually developed a character that would fit into the kingdom of God. And I think it's vitally important that we understand Bible prophecy and the present truth and the truth about the Sabbath and the state of the dead and the sanctuary message and the second coming. All of this is of vital importance. But the proclamation must be wrapped in a demonstration of the character of the king that we proclaim. By the way, I especially like that the righteous and the wicked say the identical thing, word for word, identical. Lord, when did we see you? But they say it with a different tone of voice, right? The righteous say it like, think about it from the wicked's perspective. Lord, when did we see you? Sick or in prison. I mean, we saw lots of people sick and in prison, but it wasn't you. It was just, you know, those people. If we'd have known it was you, <laughs> I'd have absolutely been doing in gathering outreach, community services, prison ministry, you named it. Well, sure, but it wasn't you. It was just some old inmates. It was just those poor people. It was just those, you know how, you know how they are. Well, on the other hand, the righteous are saying, Lord, when did we see you? We never saw you. We just saw a bunch of people who needed help, and we just helped people. He's like, that's my point. You didn't know it was me, and you did it anyway. You fit in. I don't know what the Lord has put on your heart. But I can promise you this. that any genuine Christian experience will lead us to be more like the Jesus we claim to know. And Jesus' life was given in service to others who went about doing good and healing all the people of their diseases. And I don't know what it looks like in your life, but I want to challenge you to go home and ask the Lord, Lord, what, what opportunities have you given me here? And it might be the, the organized things that we've come up with as a church. That's great. It might be something else. So you don't, maybe it's something we don't even know about yet. But it's something. And you might look at your little spiritual self-sacrificing limbs as feeble and frail and atrophy and say, Lord, I can't do much, but help me to take that first step. I'm terrified to give a Bible study. But Lord, <laughs> give me the strength. I'm afraid of prisoners. Lord, give me the strength. I may not have enough money for myself, but Lord, give me the... Lord, And start to baby step walk. Becoming more and more like Christ every day. Let me ask you a question. Has today's message made sense at least? Praise the Lord. It's my prayer that there's more than just understanding that there's a Holy Spirit working conviction in your life, that there's something that I can do for the Master. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, 
please visit www.audioverse.org.